Thank you, Tom. Our friendship is long and deep, and I esteem you for your work's sake here at Countryside. It's a joy to be here at the conference, and I count it a privilege to open God's Word to you, God's people, and it's an honor uh, to have the trust of this body of leaders uh, here at uh, Countryside Joy to join with HB again, and uh, to Costi for the first time, just be with brothers in arms and to encourage one another. Um, I think I've been at the conference going on four years in a row, and I'm kind of scratching my head why. Uh, they, they have other choices. Um, but I, I was thinking just a theory. There's been an exodus of people from Southern California, and I've sent, I've sent several to this church. And so I, th- I think the relationship with Tom is he benefits, you know, from the business I give him. And... and um, <laughs> It, it's just maybe as simple as that. Uh, he, he, does, he doesn't want to lose the business of families coming from Orange County to uh, South Lake, and so um, maybe, probably not. I, I, hopefully it's a, just a mutual love and a desire to partner in the gospel. Uh, I've been given the subject, uh, the, the church at prayer or the praying church, and uh, we're in a series right now in Ephesians. Um, And a few weeks ago, we covered Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. In fact, it took me five sermons to cover that passage. I want to try and do it in one sermon today. We have a lot of ground to cover. It reminds me of the the guy that got up with the full manuscript. His heart was full. He had a lot of ground he wanted to cover. He said, you know, I really don't know where to start this morning. One of the old deacons shouted uh, from the back of the church, well, why don't you start at the end? Well, uh, we're going to just make a start, and we'll try and cover as much ground as we can in the time allotted. So open your Bible uh, to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, a message I've entitled, Not Too Much to Ask. Not Too Much to Ask. Before we read the text, I want to say this. It's been well said that every move of God... And every movement of the Holy Spirit within church history has been traced to a kneeling figure. Read the book of Acts and you will see that the early church was birthed and emerged from an upper room prayer meeting. And then it proceeded to march across the Roman Empire on its knees in prayerful dependence upon God and His Spirit to take up the word preached and bring souls to faith and to grow the church. Prayer is vital. Prayer is central to the health, blessing, and advancement of the church, and yet we struggle, and that we includes I. We struggle. Praying is a bit like eating vegetables. We know we have to do it. We know we should do it. We know it's good for us, but at times we push our prayer lives to the side of the plate. And it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I have never presumed to produce a book on prayer or even a booklet. The Scottish preacher Alexander White famously said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. I think we can identify with that. And that's why I love the prayers of the Bible. We're about to look at one of Paul's great prayers for the church. And I love that because one of the ways I can learn to pray, one of the ways you can be inspired to pray is to trace your prayer life over these great prayers. For they will teach you the proper focus and form and function of prayer in your life as an individual, in our life as the corporate church. So let's uh, honor God by opening our Bibles and giving our hearts and minds and will to the reading, the assimilation, and then the obedience to that which we learn. Follow along. I'm reading from the New King James translation of Holy Scripture. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he who would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? Now, to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. C.H. Spurgeon grew up in a congregational church that his grandfather pastored. He came to faith in Jesus Christ through a primitive Methodist church and an illiterate preacher. But after his conversion, he came to Baptist convictions and was baptized and became a member of a small local Baptist church. And one day after his baptism and him becoming a member of that little Baptist church, he was talking to his mother, and, and she said, you know what, Charles, I prayed for your salvation, but I never dreamed you'd become a Baptist. <laughs> to which he replied, oh, mother, God has answered your prayers exceedingly, abundantly, <laughs> above all that you can ask or think. God delights in answering our prayers and answering them big. There are times when God will surprise us with surprising answers to prayer. I love Jeremiah 33, 3, call on me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that are yet to be done. The text we're about to look at will remind us that God likes to exceed what we ask and to go beyond what we can imagine in what we pray for. God's ability always exceeds our ability to imagine what He can do and what He's willing to give if we would just ask. So much of our prayers fall short of His glory, His ability. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance based on the blood of Jesus and the high priestly ministry of God's Son, prayer is a laying hold of God's willingness. I think you and I would agree we don't pray enough. But I would go beyond that. We don't pray enough. And when we do pray, we don't ask for enough. Because God can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We need to pray with a much more mentality. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 11, 11 to 13, of you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Spirit to those that ask? I think it was D.L. Moody who said, with God make no small plans. Can I tweak that? With God make no small prayers. We need to stop asking for the reasonable and start asking for the remarkable. Our prayers are often too thin, too emaciated, starved of a vision of the glory of God, confined to the small areas of self-concern, rather than weighty, fat, bloated with a sense of God's mercy and power and willingness to give good things to those who ask and to those who walk uprightly, right? Is that not the promise of uh, Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12? No good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. It's not a full answer, but if you're struggling to see your prayers answered, you may not be asking for a good thing, or God has decided that's not a good thing for you, or you may not be walking uprightly, because God is predisposed to bless you. Having given you His Son, Will He not give you all things with Him? So let's come and look at this great prayer. I'm not going to spend a lot of time putting the prayer in its context. A couple of passing remarks would be, uh, this is a prayer that Paul started to pray back in verse 1. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and one would assume it's the language of prayer, he would have gone on to pray, but he didn't. He got distracted, drawn back into the gospel truths of chapter 2, into the glories of the fact that the Gentile and the Jew are now equal at the foot of the cross and now make up this unique and, and new body called the church. 
But, he, but, he, but it's, it's a prayer that was almost not prayed. But thankfully, he did pray it. And we've got it here in verse 14 where we get this language. And for this reason, he's picking up the thought of verse 1 when he got, I think, a little distracted and went on a theological digression building on what he had said before. This is, um, I would argue, probably the third of Paul's major prayers. Uh, I take the doxology of verses 3 to 14 to be a prayer of thanks and, and, and gratitude to God. And then from verse 15, you've got a second prayer. And here in chapter 3 and verse 14, you've got a third. And then one other thing, just by way of context uh, and understanding our bearings within uh, our passage, having celebrated the union of Jew and Gentile positionally in Christ through the gospel, he now prays that they would be united experientially that they would grow in their love of God, the, the, the dimensions of God's love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and show that love to one another. So let's come and look at this prayer. I've got five points. I'm going to kind of hop, skip, and jump over the first three, uh, um, and then kind of concentrate on the last two. We're going to look at the prompt, what prompted this prayer. We're going to look at the posture the disposition of heart and body in this prayer. We're going to look at the passion Paul has to pray for the Ephesians. We're going to look at the petition, the things he actually prayed for, and then we're going to look at the praise. Let's look at the prompt, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father. Remember, this is a prayer that was almost not prayed. What a loss this prayer would have been if Paul hadn't got back onto his train of thought. He's excited about the gospel. He's excited about the gospel indicatives he's been outlining in the first three chapters. The, the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3 are now coming into a doxology. And, and the thought of God's grace and God's goodness, the thought of the uniqueness of the church is prompting Paul to pray, pushing Paul to pray. In fact, this is one of eight long sentences in the Greek. This is a, you know, a run-on sentence. Paul is breathless. He's excited as he moves from theology to doxology. I think it was Warren Wearsby who said at a Moody pastor's conference years ago that I attended, don't trust the theologian who can't sing. And Paul's starting to sing, given the theology that he has just outlined. So, here's, here's the answer to the question. Um, what, what is driving Paul to pray? For what reason does he bow his knee? The gospel. The work of Christ. The, the, the grace of God. This prayer is prompted by theological reflection. Theological revelation. Paul was swimming in gospel truths. Sounding the depths of sovereign grace marveling at the plan of God and the distinct program of the church, celebrating the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ, anticipating future glory and God's eternal purposes for the church. So I think there's a takeaway from the prompt. Write this down if you're taking notes. Big truths about God and the gospel lead to big prayers. Our prayers are emaciated, they're weak, they're skinny, because our understanding of God is weak and skinny. Our understanding of the gospel is weak and skinny. Paul's prayers were not taken up with the mundane, but the magnificent. He was focused on the big picture of God's eternal purpose in Christ for the church. Look at chapter 3, verse 11, uh, concerning the church. Here's God's purposes, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus, in that He was going to put His wisdom on display in the church forever. The chamber of Paul's mind is flooded with thoughts concerning the glorious works of God. Write it down, read it later. Read Psalm 111 if you haven't read it recently, where the psalmist studies the wonderful works of God. 
Look, Paul's prayer life was stoked not by the fleeting, not by the small, not by his individual needs, but by the eternal, the stunning record of God's providence and preservation and progress within the life of the people of God. He, he marveled at amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The vitality of your prayer life and my prayer life lies largely in the vision that I have of God and the glories I attach to His Son, Jesus Christ. It was the gospel. It was the electing grace of God. It was the redemptive work of Christ. It was the sealing work of the Holy Spirit that prompted this prayer. Now, I want to say, by way of qualification, God is concerned about the small details of our life, for sure. Jesus gives us permission in the Lord's Prayer, or better known, the disciples' prayer, to pray for kitchen table issues right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's kitchen table. But here's the problem. That side of prayer tends to dominate our praying. But I would remind you, even from the Lord's Prayer, that you're halfway through the prayer before you get to any concerns related to you or me. The first half of that prayer is Father, may your name be glorified. May your name be reverenced. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And, and Paul would remind us that's, that's the balance there needs to be in our praying. Certainly talk about yourself, your marriage, your kids, your health, your job, your car. But don't do that first. Revel in the grace of God. Marvel at the providences of God. Take a sweeping look at what God is up to at this present moment in history because it's part of something panoramic and magnificent. See, Paul, if you read these verses, you'll see he mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this prayer. That was Paul's holy trinity when he prayed. But when we pray, the holy trinity tends to be me, my, and mine. And Paul would challenge us to have no small thoughts as it regards God. Yes, we can pray for kitchen issues, but not before we have prayed for kingdom issues. Let me give an illustration and, 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 and move on. When the Westminster Assembly met in, 16, in the 1640s to prepare the Westminster Catechism or Confession, they came to the question, what is God? The men were so impressed at the greatness of God and their inability to frame a suitable and succinct answer that they were kind of silent for a while and until uh, one of the delegates, one of the Scottish commissioners, George Gillespie, decided, why don't we pause and pray? And so here's what he prayed, O oh God, Thy Spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in Thy being, wisdom, power, and holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Some were so impressed by the prayer and the words of the prayer that they wrote those words down, word for word, and they became the answer to the prayer and the answer to the question, what is God? See, answers to prayer begin with a big view of God. A proper understanding of His grace. That's what prompts it. What prompts your prayers? What triggers your going to the throne of grace? Of course, you can get to the kitchen issues. But let's focus on the kingdom issues. I think it was Adrian Rogers, the famous SBC pastor, who said that most prayer meetings are simply an organ recital. We pray for this person's kidneys and this person's lungs and this person's hearts. Just an organ recital. He went on to say this too. In most evangelical prayer meetings, more evangelicals spend time praying that Christians don't go to heaven than sinners don't go to hell. It's a good word. Our prayer 
focus is, 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 you know, not what it ought to be. The prompt, number two, the posture. Not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know, we could get down into the weeds here of, of, of Paul's chosen posture. And, and in this case, he says, I bow my knees. Now, the normal position for prayer for a Jew was standing. You see that in Luke 18, 11, and 13. You go to the Western Wall today, and you'll see them wheeling as they stand on their feet. Now, the normal position for prayer for the Gentile was kneeling. And perhaps as an act of identification with Gentile brothers, Paul knelt. But we can't be definitive. And I certainly appreciate the words of Ian Hamilton in his commentary on Ephesians about not to discount your physical posture in prayer. He says this, while there is no more intrinsic excellence in one's prayerful posture than another, our bodies are not incidental to the life of faith. I find that very intriguing, challenging. He goes on, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. It matters what you do and I do with our bodies before the life of faith is concrete, because the life of faith is concrete and physical. That's a good word. And, and it would remind us there is a time and a place to kneel, to take that posture, because it conveys earnestness. It conveys humility. It recognizes the authority of one to whom you go and approach. I, I like that there is a place to kneel. There's symbolism in the act of kneeling that we shouldn't discount, and it's here. Um, kneeling is appealing to some degree, right? because of what it conveys. But in saying that, the, you, you look at the Bible, um, there are several postures uh, equally endorsed, and perhaps the moment you're in, or, or, or the circumstances you're in, or the, the mood of what you're about to express is as somber, as a celebratory, that will maybe help you select the posture, because your physical position is not incidental to your act of worship. But that said, you find Abraham standing in Genesis 18.22. You find David sitting in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16. You find Jesus on his face on the ground in Matthew 26.39. And you find Paul kneeling, Ephesians 3, verse 14. I think it was William Hendricks in his comedy said, what you'll never find is slouching. It's a good word. It's not, not really the position of your body, although we've said that's not incidental. But it's not the position of your body, it's the disposition of your heart. Is there a eagerness? Is there a humility? Is there a reverence? Is there gospel priority? And, and frankly, is there a sense of desperation, a, a real sense of need? It's our weakness that qualifies us to pray. I like the story of the three preachers who were discussing the best positions for prayer. And while they were discussing those positions for prayer, there happened to be a telephone repairman nearby, and he was listening in on the conversation. And, and, and one brother said, you know what, for me, it's standing up, it's raising my hands, it's, it's being energetic and looking to heaven. I find that just gives me a release in the spirit to pray. And the pastor says, I appreciate that. But he said, I just given the nature of God and His greatness and His glory and His, you know, His, his high and, and lifted up position, he says, I, I'd rather kneel and bow my head. And the third pastor said, you know, to the other two, and especially the second, I agree with the second guy, but I'd go even further. Given that reality, I don't think there's any better position than just flat on your face, prostrate. The telephone repairman couldn't contain me. He said, gentlemen, I've been listening to your conversation and find it very interesting. But he said, the best praying I ever did was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. <laughs> and, and, and it's a good little story, very simple, but, but it's attitude, desperation, a sense of one's inability apart from God's ability, a sense of one's fallenness apart from God's grace a sense of one's ignorance apart from God's wisdom. That's the prompt. That's the posture. Number three, the, the passion. 
Not going to spend a lot of time on this either. But the passion is Paul's desire to intercede for others, his willingness to bring the needs of others before the throne of grace in prayer. Just notice the language of verses 14 and 15. For this reason I, Paul, by my need to God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened. So it's an I, you proposition. Paul is praying for them. This is intercession. Now, we're going to get to Paul's petition here in a moment. That's where we'll concentrate for a, 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 a few moments. But we, we do want to just recognize, certainly there is a place for petition in praying where you ask God for something you need. Jesus invites us to do that in the second half of the Lord's Prayer. But praying also should be about others. Read this prayer. There's not a smidgen syllable of self-interest or self-concern. Now, we don't rule that out because later on in chapter 6, he will invite them to pray for him. But I am taking in this single prayer, in this unit of in, uh, a prayerful thought, Paul is completely focused on the saints, the family of God on, on earth and in heaven for God's glory. And we certainly want to be challenged by that. Intercessory prayer, as someone has said, is loving your neighbor on your knees. You love someone, you'll pray for them. Because prayer accomplishes much. Don't you want to see God's blessing in their life? Well, it's the slender nerve of prayer that will move the omnipotent arm of God. Love your neighbor on your knees. Love your pastor on your knees. Love your spouse on your knees. Love your children on your knees. It's a priority. In fact, in Paul's letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 4, Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, first of all, petitions and intercessions be made for all man. And I just want to underscore that this, this, this ministry of, of intercession and, and its importance. Um, we need to be praying for people. We've talked about that. All people. Broad scope, wide sweep. You need to pray for your marriage, for your children, for your wider family, and then pray for God's family. And since you're praying for God's family, pray for God's leaders within the church. And since you're praying for the church, pray for the persecuted church across the world. Pray for friends and, and the friends that they may become the friends of God. Uh, pray for small groups. Pray for workmates for salvation. Pray for mission partnerships across the world. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for those in authority. Pray for your nation. Wasn't it, um, I think his name was, yeah, Edward Everett was once the chaplain to the Senate. And he was once asked, do you pray for the Senate? To which he replied, well, I started out doing that. Then I looked at the Senate and prayed for the country. <laughs> but pray for those in authority. Pray for our nation. It's not going in the right direction. It's an abandoning the luxury of light that was bequeathed it. Pray for other nations. Make a priority of Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Th those are the particulars, but the priority is you and I need to pray. First of all, this text reminds us that intercession is a great matter of importance in the life of the church. Now, when we read, first of all, it doesn't mean in terms of order, but it does mean this is a thing of first importance. This, this is an essential component to a healthy church. 
Paul entreats and urges this action among them for it's the right thing to do, the loving thing to do, and the effective thing to do. Here's a little sidebar on that. You know, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. In the New Testament, He has a people for His temple. And you and I are described in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and Revelation 1 6 as a kingdom of priests. And God calls us to that priestly ministry of intercession for our family, wider family, God's family, this nation, other nations, the saved and the lost. If you go back to Exodus 28 verses 16 to 21, the, the, the high priest of Israel went in behind the curtain into the very presence of God to represent the people of God. And you know he had an ephod on, right, on his breastplate. What was on that? Twelve precious stones in three, uh, uh, four rows of three, I believe. Precious stones near his heart. Because you see, for the high priest of Israel, the people of God were precious to him, valuable to him, and on his heart. And he expressed his love for them by praying for them. God has called us to that kind of priestly ministry. To pray for the church. To have them on our heart. To value the church and its leaders and its members and its mission. We see this, don't we? In in this principle and priority and pattern. In, in, in the prayer we just mentioned a few minutes ago, Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. Take another look later on at the Lord's Prayer. It's not for the individualist. It's, it's in the plural. Do you notice that? It's a corporate prayer. Uh, I came across a poem that kind of explains that. It says this, you cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, I You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, my. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. Let's um, grasp that. When you and I are in the presence of God, we should be unable to think of Him as having exclusive interest in us. Yes, He's our Father. But regarding our brothers and sisters in Christ, He's equally their Father. And you can't go before the Father without thinking about the family. I hope you'll reflect on that. Prayer must not be about us grabbing the microphone with little regard to others and their concerns. Prayer must never have a tunnel vision but a peripheral vision, looking to the wider needs of others. We don't want to be like Uncle Irv, who um, was not noted for being religious or devoted to God, but he needed $3 million to clinch an important real estate deal, so he went down to his local synagogue where he hadn't been for a while to pray for the money. And when he got there, there was a man already in prayer, praying that God would give him $100 for his next rent payment. Uncle Irv put his hand in his pocket, pulled out a $100 bill, gave it to the man, pressed it in his hands, and the man thanked him, got up and left the sanctuary. And Uncle Irv then looked heavenward and said, Lord, now that I have you to myself and your undivided attention, and he began to pray. But that's not what we do in prayer. We don't grab the microphone of prayer and sing a solo. Let's come to another thought here, the petition, and then we'll get to the praise, and that's where we'll spend the balance of our time we're really at the heart of the prayer now. As Paul pleads and intercedes for the church at Ephesus, uh, his prayer is formed around several desires for them. He prays for consolation, prays for communion, prays for comprehension. Let's move through these as quickly as we can. First of all, he prays for consolation. Look at verse 16. That God might grant you 
according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. Paul prays that they might be fortified. He wants them to enjoy the consolation of the Comforter, the help of the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And, and they needed it. They lived in a hostile environment. They were a target for satanic opposition. You see that in chapter 6, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And he prays that they might be strengthened to stand in the evil day, Ephesians 5.15 and Ephesians 6.13. In fact, this is similar to the prayer Paul offers for the Colossians. If you go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11, that you might be strengthened with all might, I love this phrase, according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Derek Tidball, picking up on that phrase, His glorious power, He said, that's the might of a sovereign creator who brought the world into being out of nothing, a miraculous Savior who brought an oppressed people out of Egypt, a majestic deity who shows himself in the thunder and lightning of Sinai, a triumphant life giver who brought Jesus back from the dead. We have no fear that his resources will be inadequate. He can more than strengthen us for the task. I want you to notice, too, this is strength for the inner man. Don't miss that. It's strength for the inner man, the deep recesses of our being. What he's talking about here is the mind, the heart, the will. And it's the strength we need most, right? Our outward man is perishing. But the inner man can be renewed day by day. This strength is available to the nine-year-old, the 19-year-old, and the 90-year-old. This is strength for the recesses of our being, and it will produce in the believer reason, resolve, reserves. This is not the strength you'll find in the, the, the local gym. This is the strength you'll find in a cancer ward in the funeral parlor, in the tough home situations of life. It, it speaks of, a, of emotional fortitude and willpower. This is the kind of strength that someone like Johnny displays. Her body in a wheelchair is perishing. It's weak. It's impotent. But in my interactions with her, both in services and in just in in leisurely conversation, this woman is army strong. This woman has got fortitude and willpower where it counts most in the inner being. And we're being promised that. I, I hope that you'll pray that for yourself and for those who are going through tough times, that God would strengthen them according to the riches of His glory, according to His almighty might, that they would be strengthened in the inner man. Not only does He pray for their consolation, He prays for their communion. Paul and I prayers that Christ would be at the center of their lives, not the circumference. Look at verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you would be strengthened. And now I pray for a deepening intimacy between you and Christ experientially. If the heart, the mind, and the soul is the command center of our lives, we need Christ enthroned there. We need Christ dwelling there. This Greek word dwell means to settle down. It means to take up residence. It means to make oneself at home. It's to be deeply rooted. It's to be a dominating factor. Now listen, Christ's indwelling presence in our life is not static. It's dynamic. And I love this image of the home, settling down, getting your feet under the table, putting roots in, 
I love Paul's image of a house and the experience of moving in. Because that happens by degrees. Maybe a lot of people are moving to Texas. Maybe you're one of them and you've moved into a new home. It's going to take time, right? To learn where the grocery store is, the pharmacy, to get your kids settled into school, to meet your neighbors, to then make that house your own. You've maybe left a home. You've been in for 10, 15 years. It felt like home. This still feels like a house. Feels like a motel. But give yourself time. You'll decorate it. You'll build memories. And all of a sudden, It'll be this word, you'll dwell there, you'll settle down there. Love that image. It takes time for a house to become a home. It takes time for Christ to settle down in our lives and for us to fully understand why he laid hold of us and for the lordship of Christ to incrementally, by degree, take hold of every area of our life. I think we can all remember, I do, the awkwardness of those days straight after salvation. Church, prayer, Bible study, worship, loving the saints, going out to witness. There was a certain awkwardness that's real and understandable as you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul prays that the Christ who now indwells them, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 22, both they as individuals and they as the church have become a, a place fitted together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Christ had entered their lives, and now he wants to go door to door, room to room. Got a question. Is Christ in your life this morning? I got a second question. How far in? Is he still in the hallway? Have you kind of confined him to the living room? There was an old book called um, My Heart Christ Home, not the deepest theological tome ever written, but it's helpful. And it picks up this image of Christ settling down and Robert Munger kind of takes all the different rooms of a house and challenges you. Is Christ still in the hallway? Is he in the living room? Is he, is he in the kitchen? Here's what he says, or, or here's the takeaway from his little book. Let Christ go beyond the living room. Have you invited Christ into the kitchen or the dining room to change and transform your appetites? Into the family room to transform your marriage and your relationships? Into the recreation room where he has a say and his lordship matters in how you spend your time? Into the study where he transforms and renews your mind into the bedroom where he speaks into the intimate spaces of your relationship? Have you gone so far as to let him into some of those secret closets that need cleansing and you need to be freed of? I, I like that. I'm, I'm challenged by that. Have you given Christ the key to every room? Are you, is he settling down in your life? Is it becoming more natural to pray, more natural to worship, more natural to witness, more natural to serve? William Booth was once asked in an interview what he counted as the secret to his success in ministry. He said this, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me there have been men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision for what Jesus Christ could do for the disadvantage of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything that describes and, and explains the power in the Salvation Army today, it's because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence over my life. It's a good word. He prays for comprehension quickly. He prays for comprehension. Let's keep going in the text. 
that Christ may dwell, settle down in your life through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that they might know Christ's love expansively. See, that ties into the transition thought from the previous thought to this thought. See, a life rooted in Christ is a life that will be rooted in love. Right? Well, we'll start to love others like He loved us. That's the final apologetic, as Francis Schaeffer says from John 13, 34 to 35, and we know we've passed from death to life if we love the brothers, 1 John 4, 7 to 11. So we're not surprised. The more our lives are filled by Christ, the more loving we will become because that's who He is, and that's what He will be through us. And it's a matter of degrees, isn't it? If God's love for us were a notion... The Christian can paddle in it and wade into it and feel its bottom, know it, experience it, touch it, feel it. And yet at the same time, he can swim in it and dive in it and not touch the bottom. Because that's the irony here, right? He calls them to know what's unknowable. Hey, I want you to know what passes knowledge. And so the love of Christ is comprehensible and the Spirit of God opens our minds as we come to understand the Word of God and, and, and Christ becomes real to us and the gospel becomes real to us and the demonstration of God's love on that hill called Calvary becomes precious to us. But the love of God which started in eternity will take us an eternity to understand. We'll only ever be touching the hem of that garment but may we ever increasingly understand its dimensions. When it comes to God's love, it's like Solomon's wisdom, the half has never yet been told. The word comprehend here means to grasp, catch, seize, lay hold of, interestingly overtake. So Paul is saying, here's what I'm praying for the church at Ephesus and every other church, that you would pursue the love of God expressed in the cross, found in the gospel, and you would overtake it and own it. That you would paddle in it, wade in it, swim in it, dive in it, have an active role in coming to comprehend it. I'm not going to spend any time or a lot of time on the dimensions, the width of that love, it's wide enough to take in the whole world, including you. It's long enough to stretch back to eternity past when God chose us in an act of love, sovereign and kind in Jesus Christ. God has loved you, does love you, always will love you. The height of it, someday it will take us to heaven itself from which that love descended. The depth of it, that Christ was willing to descend, become incarnate in flesh and, and, and enter into the darkness of alienation from God as He died that sin atoning substitutionary death for us. Oh, the, the breadth of it and the length of it and the height of it and the depth of it. A couple of things quickly and we'll get to our last thought. Do notice with the saints, don't want to miss that, with the saints. Now, if you want to love Jesus more and you want to know his love more, you can't do it without the church. This is, this is a team sport. It requires the whole people of God to make sense of the whole love of God. We know love best in company, don't we? Not in isolation. Some things can't be learned on our own and love is one of those. Because love is expressed, love is received, love is reciprocal. 
And as you and I love one another, it's in that exchange of talking about Christ and worshiping Christ and marveling at Christ, we grow into a better understanding of Christ. Another little thing not to miss, and we'll move to the last thought, is this, that you might know the love of Christ. But, but notice here, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend that love with all the saints. The word able there means that you may be strong enough to comprehend Christ's love. Some of us struggle to comprehend it. I tell you this, wouldn't I? Today there are some of us who struggle to receive it. One writer, Daryl Johnson, in his commentary in Ephesians said, some of us experience things in childhood that keep haunting us, drowning out the knowledge of God's love. Some of us have tapes playing in our minds of how God cannot love us. We're unworthy. Some of us have things in our past that we cannot forget that keep us from expressing our love for God. Some of us have faced circumstances and are facing them right now that call God's love into question. Many of us look around at the misery of the world right now and wonder how God would allow that to happen if He's loved. Some of us are disappointed, but God, I think you get it. We struggle to understand it. We struggle to embrace it, and others will help us be strong enough to embrace it, get past our wound, get past our sin, get past our past. You'll do that with the saints. They'll help you in worshiping together, and studying the Word of God together. Let me squeeze this in. I like the story of the professor of psychology who had no children and wasn't married, and he liked to kind of lecture his neighbors who had children and would wag the finger when the kid was in trouble and the mother or the father was about to spank the kid or whatever, and he'd say, you know what? You need to love that boy. Don't punish him. Then one hot summer day, he had been repairing his concrete driveway, and after several hours of work, he noticed a little rascal to the corner of his eye who was about to put his foot in the concrete. And the professor ran over quickly and lifted him up and was about to swat him. One of the neighbors saw that and said, oh, professor, don't you remember? Just love them, don't punish them. To which he said, I love him in the abstract, not the concrete. <laughs> I love him in the abstract, not the concrete. And, and, and I'll tell you what will make the, the love of God concrete, the church. A body of saved sinners living out the grace of God in community, forgiving one another, and growing in the knowledge of Calvary love. Time's gone. The praise... We're going to kind of wrap up here by getting back to where we started. So one advantage of being lost, you can steal five more minutes. <laughs> he finishes with an exclamation mark of praise. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. J.I. Packer said the purpose of theology is doxology. We must study in order to praise. As I said earlier, Warren Wearsby, don't trust a theologian who cannot sing. Paul's theology now turns into doxology, and, and there, there are several uh, points about this doxology we could look at. I'm just going to focus on the heart of it. The subject of the doxology is this, God's absolute and awesome power God's ability to accomplish the impossible. Don't you love that? Write down Romans 16, 25 to 27. Write down Jude 24 to 25. Because in those two passages, Paul talks about unto him who is able to subdue our enemies and put them under our feet to present us thoughtless before God. And if you read these verses, especially verse 20, it, the text builds like a piece of music, like bolero. God is able to do. Oh, hold on a minute. God is able to do all that we ask. Hold on a minute. God is able to do above what we ask. We're not finished. Able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask. Hold on. Able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. 
We've got to stop praying for the reasonable and start praying for the remarkable. Yes, we don't pray enough. And yes, even when we do pray, we don't ask enough. God is able to exceed our expectations as we leave this conference and go home. Abraham could not have imagined being many years without a son, becoming the progenitor of a great nation that would bless the nations. Moses could not have imagined after 40 years in the backside of the desert because of disobedience and arrogance and a lack of patience that God would use him back in Egypt to deliver his people where he would see the performance of miracles and take them through the red. See, David, as a shepherd boy, could not have imagined how far God would take him. In fact, later in life, he will say, who am I? And what is my house that the Lord has brought us so far? Nehemiah could not have imagined the favor of God in the permission, protection, and provision of the king, sending him with an army, with a blank check to go into the forests of the kingdom and take whatever he needs. Mary and Martha could not have imagined that that day their brother would be brought back to life. Do you believe? Yeah, you'll raise him in a future day. What about today? These stories are a reminder of how guilty we are of limiting God and his ability. They challenge you and me to stop thinking only on the human level, to move beyond the boundaries of logic, to reject conventional wisdom, and to make sure that we don't confine what our eyes see and our hands hold and our emotions sense, confining God to that. Wasn't that Gideon's problem? How can I save Israel? Wasn't that Mary's question? How can this be? I'm a virgin. Wasn't that Andrew's observation? What is this among so many? As we wrap up, Ian Hamilton in a wonderful little comedy in Ephesians says this. Because God is such a God, we need never lose hope. There is no one beyond his power to save. There is no enemy he cannot vanquish. No temptation he cannot help us to overcome. No indwelling troublesome sin he cannot put to death with his enabling help. Write this down and meditate on it. Psalm 81 verse 10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Joel Beakey's got a great sermon on that. When you and I open our mouth to pray, how big is the appetite for a spiritual helping? Open your mouth wide and God will fill it. Be, be expectant. The first lady of American theater, Helen Hayes, once told a story of her attempt to cook her first Thanksgiving dinner. She wasn't much of a cook. And after several years of marriage, for some strange reason, one particular Thanksgiving, she decided to have a, a go at it. And her husband and son were completely shocked. In fact, they weren't expecting too much. She said this, you know what? Here's what we'll do. This may not come out exactly the way you want it to. If it's not good... Don't say a thing. Without comment, just stand up from the table and, and, and put your clothes on or your coat on. We'll go to the nearest restaurant. So she went into the kitchen and she, she slaved and she came walking out into the dining room with the turkey and, and there was standing her husband and son with their coats on. <laughs> the boys weren't taking any chances. What's the point as we wrap it up? You're... Your expectations do affect what you do and, and the actions you take. My friend, I hope you leave this conference encouraged to love the church. I hope you leave expectant for God to do things in your life and your church. As you leave today, is it peace you need?
He can give you a peace that passes human comprehension. Is it grace you need? He, he can make all grace abound to you in all things. Is it answers to prayer you need? He can do that exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ask or think. Is it wisdom? He'll give you it liberally. Is it goodness and mercy? He'll fill your cup till it overflows. Leave today in the spirit of William Carey. Expect great things for God and attempt great things for God. Father, we we thank you for this conference, and we pray that the accumulation of the exposition and teaching of your word would have a profound impact, that it would reform us, that it would renew us, it would call us to repentance regarding our love and our commitment to the local church, the spread of the gospel, the discipling of the nations. Lord, help us to remember that image that when all the scaffolding of history comes down, it's the church alone that will abide and remain glorious, presented faultless before the Father. And so, Lord, help us to make your mission our mission and your priority our priorities. Thank you for this encouragement right here at the end of the conference. You've called us to do a lot. You've challenged us to do more. And we thank you that we'll be able to do that because we can expect great things from you and we can expect and we can attempt great things for you. With God, make no small plans. With God, make no small prayers. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.